Welcome to RMIT Creative The Salon. Every Tuesday, we sit down and discuss topics that interest us, texts that we loved, or things that made us angry. We share, we chat, and usually it morphs into a crazy discussion about many recommendations on things to watch, listen, or read. If you would like to join us, you can head over to our Facebook group, RMIT Creative The Salon, to participate at 3pm on Tuesdays. In the Facebook group, you will also find links to recommendations talked about in the show and sneak peeks about what we will be discussing next week. So uh, before we begin, um, we'll start with um, Andreas' topic, but before we begin, um, I'd like to acknowledge uh, the first peoples of the land from which I'm joining you today, the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung language groups of the Eastern Kulin Nation. Their people have been living, conversing and sharing knowledge on this land for thousands of years. I pay my respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and to any elders and members of other communities who may be joining us today. Uh, and I acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Uh, welcome to the Salon, which is also part of Pride Week, our celebrations at RMIT, uh, which is really exciting. And I'd like to introduce Andreas, who will be starting with our first talk. Hello, everybody. I'm Andreas. Nice to see a lot of wonderful new faces as well. As the wonderful Elizabeth stated, it is Pride Week this week and RMIT has taken the initiative to instill and instigate a whole bunch of um, Pride Week and LGBTQ friendly sort of events and little activities and whatnot and just making it very vibrant that RMIT is and always will be an extremely inclusive university and community for anybody who is coming from any sort of direction, whether it be industry-based, school-based who are going to a tertiary education, they are more than welcome to come to a university that is very opening and accepting of who they are, which is wonderful. And in saying that, the topic for this week is in regards to that Pride Week discussion, and it is what does it mean or who is it that is a queer icon? Now, queer icons can take many different forms, many different ideologies, many different shapes, sizes, you know, all different ways of discussing the whole topic of acceptance and whatnot. And it's been a very much publicised and stretched topic for the past maybe half century or so, probably over that as well, with a whole bunch of individuals coming into their own perspective and coming into the light of people who have strong uh, positive opinions in regards to the LGBTQ community. So in regards to some in particular, we have a whole bunch who started off particularly working within areas that were predominantly LGBTQ friendly. For example, lots of entertainers in the entertainment industry who perhaps started off their careers performing and getting that public interest through performing in LGBTQ clubs, facilities and whatnot. And that includes people like Lady Gaga and Bette Midler, who started off their careers in those areas of interest and that just propelled them into stardom and they are still seen as extremely positive forces in light of the LGBTQ community as well as having all this different buzz around them for being a part of the forefront areas of the gay liberation movements especially in the 20th century as well as Lady Gaga herself being a part of the LGBTQ community openly being a bisexual individual as well as having the well-known LGBTQ anthem born this way which everybody loves to bop to and everyone loves it and it does have its very heightened message of you were born this way you have the right parts of you there's nothing wrong with you and you can be as free and as 
beautiful as you can possibly be. Then we have a whole bunch of other individuals who are so outwardly supportive. For example, we have Madonna, who is a powerful force, especially in the 1980s, with lots of sexual taboos in her lyrics, which was very strongly ignited in that period. And she's also had a very strong support during the HIV AIDS pandemic, which emerged during the later parts of the 20th century. We've also got Diana Ross, who has festive, festive fun and campy attire and music, as well as her collaboration with the widely regarded and critically acclaimed musical The Wiz, which is very LGBTQ friendly. And she also released the very popular hit, I'm Coming Out, which is very much a staple of the LGBTQ community. We also have one of the most well-regarded and one of the most famous LGBTQ individuals. We have the singer and actress Cher, who really came into that LGBTQ stardom in the 1970s and 80s, beginning of the gay following very flamboyant costumes. And she was also one of the first people to ever include drag performers in her show which is her Las Vegas residency in 1979. And she's also very supportive of her transgender son, Chaz Bono, which is beautiful. Another, um, not transgender, sorry, another LGBTQ individual who is unfortunately no longer with us, but who has a very much big and elaborate and flamboyant following is Freddie Mercury, who never publicly came out as gay, but he was very spotted and flamboyant and used all those costumes and everything and even though he didn't specifically say look I'm this and this he still wasn't afraid to be himself which I think was wonderful. We also have like a connection duo we've got like Judy Garland and Liza Minnelli when Judy Garland is the mother of Liza Minnelli and both of them are wonderful LGBTQ um, content providers let's say supporters because Judy Garland is regarded as the most famous of them all. She's regarded as the Elvis of the homosexuals and gay people also felt it really positive that they could relate to her personal struggles as well, especially in the entertainment industry, her struggles with alcohol and drug abuse, which aren't topics that are talked about lightly, but it's still that connection that fans could have with someone that they really acknowledged. And Liza Minnelli with that cabaret aspect, especially with the film and how it depicts bisexuality, et cetera, et cetera. Then we also have Elton John, who is absolutely up there with the gay icon status, but especially in a sense of not such a performer. But he is a gay legend who instigated the Elton John AIDS Foundation, which has made over $400 million worldwide ever since it was first instigated, which I think was wonderful. We also have someone who... I was very surprised to hear about Elizabeth Taylor, the infamous actress from the 20th century, who very smartly used the tabloids against herself to support HIV and AIDS because she was just like, they're not going to let me retire, so I better well use them for some good. And she rounded up the American Foundation for AIDS as well as the Elizabeth Taylor Foundation for AIDS, which made $270 million worldwide. We also have the absolute beautiful multi-talented EGOT winner Barbara Streisand who is an icon in herself but it's incredible to see that she's very supportive of her openly gay son which is wonderful and then we also have one in particular which is fantastic and a very big personal favorite of mine Janet Jackson who in the 90s released her album Velvet Rope in 1997 which speaks out against homosexuality uh, not homosexuality sorry homophobia speaks out against homophobia and addresses 
the love and support for same-sex love and same-sex couples and she did this in sort of a personal sense because she unfortunately lost one of her friends to AIDS which enables the song Together Again to be about that dream one of the lyrics is a dream about us together again and it's just a heartwarming and heartfelt ballad in regards to someone in the public eye who unfortunately lost someone to this unfortunate disease but at the same time that reminiscence of how such a beautiful person in someone's life a part of the lgbtq community can be impactful in such a strong light now in saying that that very long list of all these recognizable names that everybody here no doubt can sort of ring a bell in their mind of like, oh, yes, I know that, I know that person. They did this, this, they sang that song and whatnot. They all have this brilliant presence within the community of the performing arts, and especially in their um, liberation movements, their protesting movements, their activism movements in regards to AIDS and HIV, especially in the 20th century, and as well as being at the forefront of the movements in support of equal rights with same-sex couples and same-sex marriage and everything in between which is fantastic and through that they've instigated themselves as these profound and magnificent queer icons that everyone seems to love which is for good reason because they do amazing work within their fields so in saying that i'd love to hear what everybody else thinks perhaps about these specific individuals in general or go right ahead and discuss your own queer icons that you think have made a significant impact to both significant impact to both yourself and the world around you. Um, I guess one of the things that I was thinking uh, when Andreas was telling us about all these amazing performers and the incredible activism and and the work they've done in the community to promote acceptance and as well as their charity work is just the the power of art to reach people. I guess because these um, are creators who were working uh, particularly in times when there was a lot less acceptance for the LGBTQI community and uh, they've been at the forefront of creating that acceptance in the broader in the broader culture um, through their work and through their art which everyone can connect with and everyone loves like everyone would have heard of, of at least one of those artists I think. That's very true because in regards to what you were saying they're using art to say that and at the same time a lot of it is all this entertainment art it's music art it's visual art it's screen art which everybody can connect to but also everybody usually has quite easy access to they can see it they can see everything that's being shared they can see every message that's written between the lines or is openly thrown in our face and they can understand that this is coming from a very good and positive position that is reflected by the artist's beliefs yeah, almost anyone, you know, would have access to the radio in some way, you exactly. know, even, even in the 70s. So you would have had a chance to hear the, their music. I guess through the art forms, right? That's the best way to reach people who would not consider themselves part of the queer community, I guess, in essence, like heteronormative society. So if you could like, you know, use your art, which is a really accessible medium, it's more accessible than say academic work, I guess is what I'm saying. Like yeah, that's, that, that's a good thing. It. And it's could could be enjoyable to understand people who are different in, in that uh, context. I think it makes it a celebration. That's true. Yeah, like no, nobody not I don't I don't want to say nobody, but I don't think like society at large wants to like dig into academic papers like by Foucault or Butler or whoever. 
it, it, one person could trivialize the fact that like, you know, it's just art, but I feel like art is probably more culturally significant than academic work, given that it is so, um, so ingrained within the community and community values, like that it can alter community values. Um, as an artist, I would agree. <laughs> Other than academic. I mean, I've, I've read academic papers, but they're heavy going. <laughs> they, I think everything has their place, but um, art mm. is definitely very accessible, uh, which is um, so important when you're creating those big cultural shifts. Exactly. It's kind of like on that point where um, I'm assuming that the people that you've mentioned are mostly comprised of artists. Yes. Like, and I think that's right. Like, I'm not even taking away from that. I think um, because I was thinking about the prompt prior to the call and I kept thinking like, you know, like I like James Baldwin and, and other artists who are yeah. in, kind of incidentally queer. Like I wouldn't, as in, that is to say their work isn't about being queer or they're not trying to like engage in that front. Um, so it kind of got me thinking, and I'm a huge fan of uh, Judith Butler and Gail Rubin. They're, they're academics whose work has made a, a huge difference in feminism, in, in the queer community, and like also politically, as well as like personally in my life. Um, so ideas like uh, Judith Butler, if for those who don't know, um, coined gender performativity. So the idea that we're kind of unwittingly performing a gender and that gender is not a, um, a how would you say, it's it's not natural, it's not inherent, but it is actually it's like a culturally, yeah, it's like, mm -hmm. a, it's like a, it's a behavior. It's a series of behaviors that we can like choose to perform. And um, Gail Rubin was a huge part of um, queer theory and, and the idea that like some, sexes and some sexualities are culturally rewarded or punished and and why that is politically you know like the things like that I, I don't know like how useful that is for this conversation between us all but I thought that it was really empowering to hear their writing because I felt like more I felt more autonomous I felt like I could understand uh, where I sit culturally, like um, with my identity, I suppose you could say. And yeah, I, th I think their work was just really important for me as an individual, let alone like um, the impact they've had in their fields and stuff. It's interesting, the intersections, I think, between that, that sort of academic theory and then seeing that play out um, yeah, in, in art and broader, more mainstream culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because those are all household names. Like I, I would say that... Um, my very heteronormative parents would know every single one of those names and love all of them. Exactly. Because some I of them just have really had that important. impact. Exactly. It's really important. Mm. Some of them have been around for such a long time as well. And they're still prevailing to this day. They just keep pumping out all this content that is very much loved and acknowledged by everybody, regardless of your sexuality or your gender. Yeah, they're all still relevant, all of those exactly. names. Yeah, they're part of the, I guess, the cultural canon. Western culture. Exactly. Definitely. It's pretty incredible. Noticing like names like Freddie Mercury and Elton John like and having their stories kind of remade into movies. Yeah. Um, I'd love to get your take on that Andreas because I guess that's not some like 
maybe I know of those things, but I know like some of my younger my young siblings or their friends might not have. It's not something they would actively search out and go listen for. So like those movies have kind of brought those names like back into um, their kind of cultural sphere, I guess. So that's also that's really important. True. That's really true, and especially like how impactful these individuals are and it just gives that broader education of they're not just an entertainer they're actually a very much stable figure in the community especially as an lgbtq individual how they support the industry how they support the people of their sort of same lgbtq status and how that is presented but it's just not like you were saying lots of people are just like oh it's their music there's that one song that they sing that's at every single party that's being played but no there's more than that (laughs) there's like a story that's very much worthy of being told especially with a number of these individuals and I wouldn't be surprised if in the next maybe five decades or so every single person on the list that is right here has a movie about them for example Judy Garland has the movie the Judy film with Renee Zellweger was wonderful so does Elton John Freddie Mercury but yeah a lot of these people Elizabeth Taylor as well but people like Barbra Streisand Diana Ross Madonna Cher they will probably very much get that response with a biopic movie because A, they just have that cultural response and that very much LGBTQ and just wider reach audience that is very much eager and very much would be positively responsive to a film of that nature. Um, Can I ask, uh, this isn't to um, diminish the the positive effects of those movies at all, at all, but... um, are, are the writers and directors, especially the screenwriters, are a big deal um, for those films? Their queerness, if you want to use that word, I don't, I don't, and I'm not suggesting it could be weaponized, but it's more like, um, I guess, like there's a mythology to, for instance, Freddie Mercury's queerness, and that like he he was really like an open book, but like during his career, I think with Queen, it wasn't that prominent, to, as in like he wasn't talking about it that much in the public world as far as my understanding was. And I feel like I there's like a caution with biopics like that, like that, there's mm-hmm. an uneasiness, like uh, as well as like a hell yeah, we can like celebrate Freddie. And then like also you also like, I don't know about you, but I also get this feeling of like protectiveness over the, over like um, people are going to tell you this is what Freddie was like kind of thing. It's like a narrative. And I think, I don't know, like I'm not against it at all. It's just more like a concern of mine when it comes to biopics with, particularly with queer icons, because um, the directors are off, more often than not, um, not necessarily queer. I'm not saying they have to be to tell the story truly or whatever. In regards to those issues, there is a sort of sensitivity that follows as well, especially mm-hmm. if you're saying with Freddie Mercury, because he never publicly came out as being gay as well, which was very much a part of his identity as well. But that's not to say that it diminished him at all because at the same time even if you are a member of the lgbtq community it's not necessarily like a pressing fact of like you don't need to come out there's nothing that's forcing you to come out you come out because you feel perhaps it's entirely your choice and your choice alone if you feel that you don't need to come out and you just need to live your life as freely as you like and as positively as you like without having the need to be like but i'm this because you don't want to conform to anything that society is perhaps forcing on you that's totally fine Hmm. but at the same time i know for a fact the elton john biopic elton john was an executive producer on the film oh 
yeah, so he very much like had that sort of creative impact on the picture itself. And he was probably like, oh, it's good to show this part of my life. Or maybe this life is part is not important or it's a bit sensitive. So it will like stray away from that. So it's like, it's a bit of like a interesting factor to see like some films have that connection with the artist, some films don't. But in, in saying that, like there are films that are probably going to come out in the next, like I said, like five decades or so with those other artists perhaps they might have influence perhaps they might not I guess we'll wait and see mm-hmm. did you like Moonlight? Did, Moonlight did was everyone, great did everyone like Moonlight? I thought that was fucking amazing it was and a beautiful film I feel like it really engaged my mum I'm not not to illustrate my mum as not being aware of like of you know, queer people or anything like that. But it, and then, I mean, I feel like it really spoke to a really, really specific black American queer issue mm-hmm. or like culture or whatever you want to call it, like that kind of hostile environment. Like it, I just found that movie fucking incredible for, for like aforementioned reasons, like about being able to open that world up and that open that understanding up to people not a part of the community in a way that is really engaging and meaningful. Yeah, exactly. The acting was awesome. I guess, like, back to the point about, like, um, the movie, biopic movies, and, like, having creative, having the people that made the movies made out, having kind of some kind of creative license. I guess that just made me think of, like, ghost writers for biographies and, like, I don't know if there's a correlation there, but, like, I guess I don't really know how biography writing works now that I've brought this idea up. Like, if someone writes another story about someone else, like, I guess books, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, like, books seem to have this kind of authority that, like, what's written in them is right. But I don't know. Yeah. I guess those biographies tend to be like problematic when they're that they're that kind where um they are ghost written and they do follow formulas of say you know I was this raw talent and then this thing happened to me and it's like several strung together anecdotes and stories of like overcoming challenges and (laughs) yeah like it could be quite interesting that the ghost writer has a, a personal take on the other person's like queerness if that's what we're talking about I guess it's hard to compress any life into an hour or a book like you know it's so much more complicated and both of those those mediums like movies or books require a sort of narrative arc like you can't have the kind you cannot contain the complexity of a human being in those (laughs) things um but uh yeah, I think as well with biographies, it's quite interesting because there's autobiographies, which is written by the person, and ghostwriting would be written by someone else but presented as written by them, um, which is sort of where there's that level of like, it's almost like a deception. Whereas biographies, then there's the authorised biographies, which have had access to the subject, and the unauthorised biographies, which have like gone through their bin or whatever they do, <laughs> <laughs> or dug up their friends from primary school or whatever it is, however they, they write unauthorised biographies. Um, but I guess the thing I was thinking about when you were talking about movies and biographies and things like that is I guess the each piece, uh, each artifact is a, is a product of its time. So the movies are able to show a story that wouldn't have been able to be told at the time it was happening, which I think mm. is a really, it's a really that's great thing true. that they're able to do. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that is possible because of the work that um, all of these icons did. 
you know, in pushing culture forward. Yeah. Lady Gaga might just be somebody that you just listen to, but then it's, you can then turn on a different lens and listen to it in a different way. And, like, that artist gets to be different for different people. I think that's important too. Yeah, I guess it's the, um, is that the death of the author? Like, once you put a work out there, it's up to everyone else to interpret. Yeah. Um, Beyonce well comes to mind, weirdly enough. You know what I mean, guys? Like, uh, I don't know about you, but I feel like most queer people I know, queer, uh, I'll put it to you this way, most queer men I know around the age of, like, say, 20, 28, 29, who are, from, like, I feel like a lot of people I know of that sort of generalized, very generalized description fucking love Beyonce. And I know that she, I, I don't think she's queer, right? She's I think not. everyone likes Beyonce, right? Everyone loves but Beyonce. Like, I feel like she's an inadvertent queer icon given that like she's about, you know, um, embracing yourself and being uncritical and being like compassionate to yourself. And I feel like those like um, values, like, are kind of been adopted by the queer community in, in a broad sense. It's weird, like, I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's like, uh, uh, I, it's almost like queer icons aren't just queer people necessarily. That's true. They don't I, have I, to I don't know what value that, that input has, but I, the Beyonce thing has always been like, I don't know if the word is amusing or something else, but it's just like, I think it's pretty rad <laughs> that she's become this symbol of empowerment for queer people. 100%. Yeah, we were even talking, we were talking about Beyonce in our, one of my music classes um, this semester about, and like, I don't know, when, I guess this is kind of similar, but we were talking about her in the frame of like politics. And mm -hmm. like this, we were talking about what's her song, Partition. And I was like, oh yeah, I know that song. And I was like, oh, I never thought about it this way. And then we like, played the song and the music video in to like talk about it in our tutorial and my mom was like I'm like oh my god there's all these things that I just missed when I was like just listening through her album so I was just like listening to it while like I don't know doing my hair or something um <laughs> but then I when I like listening to it again in that like I guess the frame of like me studying um made the meaning completely different and like watching the music video I guess sometimes music video is a a good way to kind of share a d more direct message as opposed to like just the lyrics that someone might be listening to when there's like other things going on yeah absolutely i guess like music videos are mini movies and the song is the soundtrack <laughs> um did anyone else have a favorite queer icon from the extensive list uh that andreas has put together for us that's in the chat i like uh flawless sabrina but she's not in the list but i don't know uh you can pop her in put her in the chat I, I'm not trying to be like esoteric. I just, um, I think it was only when the prompt was released that I realized the disparity between where the queer icons that I have have come from. Like they feel very like uh, all over the place, which is kind of like, that's pretty cool. Um, I don't think I'm an authority to talk about Flora Sabrina because I don't know that much about her, but I know that um, she's a drag queen who is, a, is like well in her 60s, 70s now. And um, she was doing drag when it was illegal to do so. And so that, that's kind of the gist is sort of the, um, like uh, I think Andreas was talking about the idea and so were you about the idea of um, 
being queer in a time where it is not accepted, but then like, um, not just accepted, but I guess there's an illegality to it as well. Like you could actually go to jail for, for trying to be yourself. And for me, for me, like Flawless Sabrina was an organizer for drag events um, throughout like the seventies and eighties. So it was kind of like, I mean, you almost get this Che Guevara sort of level of um, rebelliousness to their, their queer sort of struggle that I just, I, I find particularly charismatic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I imagine a lot of these icons would have had um, personal risk you know, involved exactly. and they, that yeah. would have been part of the reason some of them uh, never came out and it would have in, impacted uh, the way they live their lives. And, mm. um, and it's amazing that they were able to do as much as they were, you know, in such a hostile culture. Yeah. I think my takeaway personally is that um, as um, I'm not I'm not pedestaling anything or, or making comparisons like out of quality of contribution, but it does it really does strike me through this conversation that entertainers, while they're not like engaging per se in like in academic discourse about being queer or politics, they are almost you could almost argue that they are on the forefront, the most forefront of engaging with the broader community, given that the, given their work through music and particularly like with film, I think with film is one of the most powerful mediums in the sense of um, it creates spaces for us to empathize with people who are so different, provided the film is made in a way that can facilitate that experience as a viewer. And I think that's more like as much as into intellectual discourse is 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 great. I think um, personally, a lot of progress, perhaps more so, would have been made by entertainers, given that um, there's no there's no um, how do you say there's no pretentious conceit, there's no academic sort of bound like uh, there's no gatekeeping to movies like a lot of the time like. It, it just comes and goes and people just consume them and like in very readily and very accessible and no, you know, they don't, it just, it just feels more effective almost. I feel like empathy is the first step of understanding, right? Yeah. And I think it's, I, I think it would definitely be proven that they're more effective than academia <laughs> on a broader scale. <laughs> Yeah, like, but like, never made a movie. Yeah. Gotta say, buddy. Maybe he should have. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when we were working on the question, it's uh, who are the queer icons of our time? And are there, we've had um, uh, Beyonce and Lady Gaga are sort of more contemporary examples, but are there any others that anyone can think of that? are very very current like sort of working I mean obviously many of these artists are still working now but any who have come to prominence uh, in the last queer year I, queer eye tan france karamo um jv and uh bobby fisher <laughs> it's bobby is bobby yeah like the, i don't know i feel like those guys and their whole show is um yeah like uh, it sort of touches on all the things I was saying what like do you have you guys seen it yes and it's it's funny you should mention it because the next topic is about reality television <laughs> oh wow 
I find queer like uh, the only conflicting aspect about the new queer eye for me is that I have this pretension about uh, my image of myself and and whether that's going to be tainted by watching reality TV. Will I still be this like perfect, you know, being? But I got to say, like queer eye just leaves me feeling like super empowered. Depending on the episode, you might cry a bit. I don't know. I'm not crying. You're crying. I cry a lot watching it. I cried like so hard in that first Japanese Queer Eye in Japan episode. That, that was fucked. I didn't ask for that. I I think they're um, a good example of like really cutting edge contemporary uh, icons in that. Um, well, like Netflix is like uh, is really taken over the film industry in a lot of ways. And I feel like it's one of the predominant uh, spaces for entertainment. And I feel like generations younger than any of us right now are like super steeped in that in that world of like, you know, that's where they get their entertainment. They don't watch daytime television so much as log into Netflix. And for them to be able to access something that progressive, um, like, you know, like, uh, I don't think the Queer Eye from our generation, when it was on daytime television, like the, the producers and the angle that they were going for was a little bit more aesthetic and not like cultural or whatnot. You know what I mean? Like it, the angle that those, um, those guys are taking with their show, it strikes me as, um, not just trying to, um, it's not a makeover show. It's, it's like, uh, trying to connect with people and they specifically go to red states. I found that quite interesting. Red states in America, like conservative. Yeah. It's again, I think it's a very inclusive show. And in the same way that the other icons we've discussed, um, it really is very accessible, um, so for people from all different sort of cultures and experiences can really connect with the human stories in it in the same way that people can connect so much and so easily with things like pop music and movies. Um, it's sort of, yeah, using entertainment and art to create sort of empathy and then to, and so then to create cultural shifts. Um, I want a hug from drama. <laughs> who doesn't? <laughs> looks, looks real good. Anyway. <laughs> wanted to throw that out there in recording uh yeah so before we uh before we move on to um the next topic i just wanted to give uh everyone an opportunity if they wanted to uh to say uh who um is their favorite queer icon i, I, oh, I yes, don't one? know many queer eye stars i know the wachowskis they're the director of the matrix if you all if you guys know them yeah 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 they're the of show on Netflix called Sensei, and they included a few transgender characters in the show. I think it really goes to show that, you know, anyone, regardless of your gender, regardless of your age, regardless of or whether you're not, you're LGBTQ, you can still take on these elite roles. And I think that's really empowering for the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad there are so many advocates for um, these sort of issues, you know, at a time, probably in the past, when there's not 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 so many advocates now, people kind of feel ostracized. These sort of people who are considered, you know, a little different, they feel kind of ostracized, and they feel like they're not accepted or they don't belong in a society. But now, because 
now with so many people bringing light to these issues, it really you know, unifies the world in some way. And I think it's really, it's really empowering and great. I love that. Yeah, that's a really yeah. good point, Sean. I mean, like, The Matrix is, like, one of the most culturally significant movies to come out in the last 20 years, like, that series. Directed by two, written and directed by two trans sisters. I feel like that's a really significant point to make. Uh, but thanks so much for everyone for those amazing suggestions. The chat is just full of uh, stuff we can all go and research and look into later. Um, like, I mean, we we could be here all day if we tried to categorize all the queer icons in our culture. But <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, that's, yeah, all here. Um, but uh, that is an amazing starting point uh, for us to go and put together, oh, my God, a playlist. Can you imagine? <laughs> that would be the most amazing playlist. I'm going to go and do that after this. <laughs> um, and, yes, and some more for academic reading and also things to watch. Uh, so we uh, Queer Eye came up in the discussion before, which was a really great segue for us because uh, Neve is going to be talking about reality, reality television. And I'd like to introduce Neve to introduce her topic. So yeah, so the question that I posed, that was what we posted on the Facebook group the other day, was what are the implications of reality TV? And I guess come to these questions from like a specific thing that I did or watched or saw. And the specific thing I watched or saw this week was um, Too Hot to Handle on Netflix, which is a questionable TV show. And I'm still yet to decide if I recommend it to anyone. So let's not get into that. But it did bring up this question, um, and I think because, just first off, I tend to come up to these ideas with, like, coming from my own personal experience and things that I've watched, I tend to forget that there's, like, reality TV is just such a huge genre, and so I really, like, encourage everyone to kind of include things. Like, Elizabeth was talking about the other day, the ABC show, which his name is lost my mind um you can't ask that yeah. oh i love 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 yeah so I, that i often watch that on some like short facebook clips of that and that, i really like that so just wanted to preface um but that reality tv doesn't mean weird dating shows so <laughs> um i guess on the topic of weird dating shows um we tend to think of reality tv as highly manufactured and airbrushed and generic and heteronormative and a version of reality that isn't really reality and I guess a great tv show which I I'm going to put in the chat right now is Unreal which is about producers of reality tv and kind of the lens that this one producer goes to make this storyline that her exec producer is like trying forcing her to make because the show needs to make money and it's free for RMIT students to log in through the library and that's why that link is there um it's a great show watch it um anyway and I think for coming off a tv show um tv cultures lecture uh not lecture semester class last semester um, we really learned that reality TV or the traditional reality TV is very important for broadcast media, for broadcast TV, and that um, this idea that timeliness and watching something live is important and the cornerstone of reality TV. Um, yeah, I love to put it out there. Does anyone have a show that they love to hate, a reality show that they love, 
that they secretly watch because there is no secretly watching. You should just uh, own what you watch on TV. Yes, this is a safe space. Yeah. <laughs> if you have a show that you secretly watch. House Hunters International. Oh my God, I love that one. Um, I'm gonna <laughs> say, um, uh, it is scripted in the sense that, you know, they, they give them three options, but they've actually already chosen the house that they're gonna get. But um, I like the idea that uh, the show is kind of shamelessly not realistic. Like they never address it and it's not meant to be eccentric. It's so milk toast, middle class, very, like it's very agreeable. Um, the show that it's not divisive in design uh, by any means. I just like it's it's advertising real estate, and there's something that just gets my parents going. They love it, <laughs> like all the time. They they watch the reruns. I don't know what it is that's so interesting. I think I'm starting to get hooked. It's also, amazing how interesting it is when the Sorry? people. Are it's amazing how interesting it is when the people are either not that interesting or they're not given a chance to show that they could be whole rounded people because oh they're, sort of just, they're sort of dragged around a series of apartments by a real estate agent. I, I do <laughs> like speculating the relationship between like, you know, um, you know, like who, who is determining what and, and why. And there's, there's a level of like, it's entertaining because of what I like, what what the viewer brings into it, but it feels relatively wholesome. But I I'd say one that I actually do recommend and celebrate is Escape to the Chateau. I'll, I'll type it in. Like I just think that's amazing. It's basically uh, a family owns a French chateau that they're uh, fixing up, and that's just the idea of the show. They're constantly fixing it, and um, it sort of sells their life a little bit. So there is a sort of unnatural element to it, but it is extremely wholesome. And the, everyone in the show feels very authentic. Like you want to spend time with them, but it's definitely reality TV, yeah. That it's reminds me yeah. of like Gordon Ramsay shows where he goes to like oh, the really, best. really bad, um, really bad restaurants and hotels and like fixes them. It's so there. entertaining. Oh, I just said that it feels like the opposite of wholesome because he's so abusive. I know, but <laughs> how hilarious. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, Iconic. Just... <gasps> Idiot oh. sandwich. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Yeah. Where's the lamb I think you in terms of like, it's interesting because there lots of those like what your the idiot sandwich stuff comes from like does he have his, I think he has another show that he does like maybe it's not how that was from a celebrity cooking thing where I think he um was like doing a kind of bit with that person like there was they were obviously a bad chef and like he was just doing his own caricature I think yeah interesting how like shows like Hell's Kitchen how we um like those people are already in the wrong because they're like serving food that's not hygienic to eat. So we, we're we like accepting that Gordon Ramsay can come in and just yell at people. Because he's, sort of like the, he's like the divine punishment. You know what I mean? And we get to watch judgment sort of be executed. It's, it's biblical. Did you say it's cathartic? That's like uh, along the same show, there was this show. I remember binging it on like YouTube while I was in. <laughs> Uh, over the summer it was like this show very very similar but different kind of guy and um he was like fixing bars 
basically the same premise, but he'd like instead of himself going in, like Gordon Ramsay like goes into the will go into a restaurant and like order every single menu of the item to test them all. This guy would like send in like secret people that were like uh, actors, and like he'd have someone working like as a new waitress or someone um, like being a customer, and then they'd like raid it and he'd have secret cameras or something. And I just remember this one episode where he sent his, for some reason his daughter had to go in and then he was watching the food get cooked he's like I'm not letting my daughter eat that and had to like go in and stop it before and it's so dramatized and just like the way he comes in yelling and just hang on I have to find it so I can like write it in the chat but I don't know it's just reality it's just so strange to me it's like it's like this window of a world that you don't live in where it's just like an extreme of life I guess Yeah, it's presenting itself as natural. I think that's where it it gets problematic is if it tries to present itself as um, as objective as true. You know what I mean? Like, like House Hunters International. I I only mentioned that for its very um, obvious format in that they have three houses. They choose from this like like that is not normal, and it's not normal on the face of it. And everyone knows that walking into it that you don't get given a star treatment by real estate agents in such a bizarre game show way. Yeah. Like something like that, where there, you know, you got this deception and drama to it. You know what I mean? Like that strikes me as presenting a version of reality, which I guess coupled with an agenda could be problematic. I, I don't know if there's an agenda for this guy fixing the bars, like politically or anything like that, but. Well, I, I think there is a, I mean, reality tv again it thrives on a story and often there's a villain or villain or you know there's a hero in the story and there's someone who's a villain and then when you get crafted into a reality tv villain you may not actually be a villain that's so (laughs) true they manipulate you so much especially those dating shows and whatnot they're really unsettling like the way they sort of and there are there are people whose job it is to look at the footage and see what stories they can create from that footage. Yeah. It's like the last season of, maybe it wasn't, the season of The Bachelor that happened. Bachelor? Yeah. With like this, um, they made this, the girl that was like supposed to be a villain, or like she was supposed to be the weird girl. She like comes out of the limo and she's like, oh, what's your star sign? Because the guy was like, and something to do with space, his (laughs) job. the best. And like it turns out that was like the um like actually like the fifth thing she said to this guy. Not the first thing she said is she don't try to limit making her look like very, very dim. But I it's guess that's right. what adds to the the user experience not user, the audience experience because the audience I guess in some way, especially with shows like The Bachelor, they like watch the show with other people so you can like talk about it with your friends. But then also you'd like read a recap of the show that someone else has written and then you like find the interviews once people get kicked off the show to like see what was real what wasn't real what was fabricated so then I guess that sets into dangerous territory because we know that like you know that it's fabricated and you know that on some level it's not real but on some level you it it is real for you I don't know I mean do you feel like you suspend your own disbelief in order to get something from like that kind of reality show. Like, I feel like, I don't think it's accidental that they present presented that. I remember that girl from that ad and I remember that being kind of amusing. I feel like they're presenting like 
in that way so that we feel like perhaps superior or we're just, you know, relieved that we're not idiots, like, and that these people are idiots because the show shows us that they are indeed that way. I feel like they're kind of addressing a need that we need to feel and they're giving it to us in that kind of show. Like, like we need a little bit more drama because our lives are a little bit like too normal, too mundane. Well, also, I wonder if, if would we watch something of the same format if we knew that they were all actors and that it was a script? You know what I mean? Like, we wouldn't watch a show like that if it was a, a drama. Yeah. <laughs> um, we'd be like, this is so boring. <laughs> you know, like, this is bad. You know, like, you know, we expect a lot more from a story, like something that is fiction and or supposedly fiction. And that, like, we wouldn't. And so there's this thing of reality TV is super cheap to make. Um, you don't actually have to pay the people who are involved. Like, mm. um, you know, they compete for a prize. Some of the time they sign really frightening contracts. Um, uh, like, I don't know, there's a lot of problematic elements. I mean, there's so many problems. I, I can't think of an aspect of reality TV. Even The Bachelor's <laughs> problematic. It's a huge harem competition where the prize is the man. I mean, like, also there's obviously the other counterpart and then the there's the obvious overtone of heteronormativity, but like the harem aspect just seems like particularly gratifying and very interesting. Like that it's, that's not considered the main problematic issue. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. also like, like yeah, yeah, but they all have to live together. Like. That's fucking weird. Like why, why is that? That's not reality. That's so bizarre. Like neither is the harem, but like the fact that they're like coupled together, like so strange yeah in the original series of the bachelor like it would be like nobody would kiss until like the last episode if somebody kissed somebody on the bachelor in its like first original seasons that was a scandal i'm like that was like show painted that female in a bad light um but now like that's the whole point of the show like if you're not kissing someone on the first date like you're out you're not you haven't (laughs) made yourself stand out in this competition Mm. of like 40 people you haven't given yourself enough story so that the editors can like keep you in um and I guess it's the same with shows like Married at First Sight I remember watching the very first season of that and like and it wasn't all like it is now that first season was very much about like the couples living in their own homes. And I love Married... I always use this example when I'm talking about this because my mum loves Married at First Sight. Nothing against her because whenever she's watching it, my dad and I will somehow find ourselves sitting there watching it with her. It's so addictive. It is so addictive. It's like total garbage, but it's... There's so much drama, like... Yeah, and we're like... My mum's like, can you guys stop talking? This is my show. Like, I just want to watch this. You don't even like it. Go away. (laughs) As my parents' show as well, they froth it. And they know it's fake. They're smart people who who still watch it because there's an entertainment aspect that's so compelling about it. That's true. I I just wonder what it gives us. Like, why why do we knowingly consume it? Because I struggle to believe that, like, the predominant market for reality TV is stupid enough to believe it. I think like they're like-minded people, like the people in this group who are smart enough to know that it's fabricated, but still watch it anyway, because they're getting something. They are. You know what it is? It's like this whole principle that um, people don't stop watching something when there is drama. They stop watching when there isn't any. Oh, 
It's yeah. because that drama factor is just so compelling. It's so addictive. It's so intense. Dare I draw it to the infamous Kardashians and their seven million shows. People love it when Kim throws a handbag at Courtney and Courtney curses Chloe and blah, 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 blah. Because that's just really entertaining. And we just, like, love to know that because it's just, like, such a thing it's just such a staple in the show for them to curse and harass each other but then that like one instagram post they'll be like i love you it's your birthday yada yada and i'm just like looking at it thinking like i'm so confused who likes who now who hates who we're not a cannibal for any of that drama i mean we (laughs) we can get engaged with it and take sides and nobody's going to talk about our credibility like you know what i mean like if chloe gets in an argument with kim like nobody's coming back to Andreas or myself or whatever or Sarah and saying like fuck you like <laughs> exactly like we, we get to watch as spectators and it's safe right? yeah but that strikes me as pretty like I don't know interesting mm-hmm. well the level of drama if it was happening in your real life you'd you know <laughs> I just don't imagine <laughs> it would be unworkable. With, like living in I just that can't even. world like imagine if you're just born into that and that was your normal yeah and then you the just gotta like you just gotta like make it work like Kylie did and just yeah. I guess you wouldn't know any different. Yeah. And then then the, the, then finding out that there's other people that don't live like you. Like <laughs> what happens when you do know that this is a difference? Like, there's another way to live. <laughs> I mean I mean to to take it to a wholesome level with like shows like um of say like escape to the chateau there's there's an empowering and educational aspect from it in the sense that um dick and um angel are the are the couple of the chateau and they're both creative in their own ways so dick's like an engineer from the military and angel's sort of like an interior designer and sort of a haberdashery whiz and by watching them, you get to see them sort of experiment and wing plenty of ideas. And it's, um, they're never talking about gospel. They're, they only show what they're doing, but it's it's sort of like, they just grab whatever around the house or down at the shops and they start making things. And um, I, I feel like there's an aspect that is really wholesome and, and useful for society at large to have a show like that, where they do feel like they can also do these things and, and, and improve their life and improve their house, for instance, their domain. Like, I'm sure there are reality TV shows for other things like, like with Queer Eye, it's a lot about, well, the, the current manifestation addresses lifestyle issues. Like they're kind of the be all end all because they've got the house, they've got a guy for the clothes, they've got a guy for, the culture and the, the romance and and another guy for you know this is like it's kind of like a self-improvement uh diet but i think it, i think the big thing with queer eye is that it shows such a diverse like group of people like when they um both in the host and and who they choose to be featured on the show like they really um reach into communities and different you know, uh, different places uh, and have, a, yeah, a diverse range of people. Where I think a lot of the sort of more like commercial, well, not the Clear Eyes, not commercial, but a lot of the sort of like bog standard sort of reality shows, they don't show that diversity. So they're kind of, they're peddling like a, a, re, like a reality that doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, and with something like, but, but then there's shows like You Can't Ask That, which is such a simple format and um, it's just interviews with, uh, if anyone who hasn't seen it, it's interviews with uh, people who've had an experience of some kind 
um, it depends, like there's a theme to each show. Uh, um, and then they, they, they get asked the general public to send in questions uh, that those people, uh, anonymously, that those people really answer. Really as well. Yeah, they, um, they you know, and- They are over a hundred years old, like questions like, um, why are you still alive? <laughs> like in those words, and they're just like, I don't even want to be alive, ma'am. <laughs> Um, but it gives a sense of like there's an element of uh, I guess you can participate in that show because you can write in write in and ask questions um, and it's surprising how many questions are the kinds of things you're like oh I probably would have asked that as well sometimes you know there's ones that you recognize that I might I might have asked that one but that can give uh, again like we were talking about before it gives people that empathy and understanding of like because they let those people sort of speak in their own voice and yeah. it's obviously a constructed into it edited but um, it's a chance to hear about a different person's life. Um, so that's nobody's what could, reality TV could be. <laughs> yeah, like, and no, nobody's a spokesperson for the for any of the individuals on the show. They talk from their own lives and personal experience. Um, but I think the problem is that we think that, well, there's a perception that reality TV is more like you can't ask that than it is like too hot to handle, but... <laughs> What's too hard to handle? Like, oh, I feel like I'm missing out. I remember Neve explaining this to me and I was like, what? Basically, it's a Netflix show. So there's only eight episodes. And it's basically it's basically Love Island. Um, <laughs> but instead of it going for a really long time, there's only eight episodes. And um, what is it? It's like five girls, five guys on an island for some reason they exclusively only wear their bathers don't know why and they're like portrayed as these hot singles that are against relationships enjoy sex and in and they all come on this reality show expecting expecting they're like oh we're gonna have a great summer we're just gonna hang out with all these other people and then the big twist at the start of the season is that um they're not allowed to touch or kiss each other or have any human contact and every time they do have contact with each other, um, money gets taken out of the communal prize pool. Oh, uh, so then, like, is there a lot of interrogating, like, by the contestants against each other? Yeah, so, and then... That's kind of bizarre. A little, a little addition to this weird premise of a TV show um, is that there's, like, this, basically an Alexa, but her name is Lana, and she's like the AI of the of the island. And um, anytime somebody like doesn't breaks the rules, she calls everyone to the fire pit and she's like, someone broke the rules and it costs three thousand dollars and now the total money is however much. And then they all like argue and sometimes people fess up and sometimes people people don't. Um, Jesus that, that's so cruel. It is just it's very so strange. It's like a slut shaming witch hunt. It's yeah. yeah, it's like Salem meets, like, I don't know. The <laughs> point of the show is that the people on the show improve and, like, learn to form more meaningful connections and they have, like, workshops where they um, can, like, learn about themselves and to appreciate themselves more, which is just, I feel like the show is trying to do a lot all at once. It's quite overwhelming. Would you say it's, like, a force for good? I know that's, like, such an absolute metric but you know what i mean like is it garbage or is it an apple as far as tv goes um, it sounds opinion, very ambitious as the person who's seen it Neve. 
person in my opinion I think it should just stay in its lane as trashy reality TV which there's nothing wrong with that I love watching reality TV like I don't care I'll turn it on for just some like mindless time in front of the TV like you know what not ashamed to admit it I'll watch Love Island it's my jam but I just don't want my reality TV to start trying to teach me a lesson or like being benevolent or moral. Yep, yeah, or make a comment about the role of technology in our lives constantly watching us. But I just feel like I prefer it when there's that line isn't crossed. But I see a lot of Netflix shows like The Circle and Too Hot to Handle that are like trying to like teach me something. I'm like, nah, like this is my time <laughs> to chill. But also, are they are they teaching it well? Like, yeah, it's like how much can I we mean, actually <laughs> develop a character in eight episodes? Like the reason why um, reality TV or when shows you have a so... premise that's so flawed. <laughs> yeah. What was that? But... Space Odyssey meets Salem Witch Trials meets um, Chastity. I love it. God. Um, and like, if you like reality TV, you'll probably find it funny and enjoy it, but. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I just think that there's just so much going on and it's just such a, yeah, I don't know. I feel like, yes, this is my point. Um, you can't, <laughs> there's only eight episodes and so you can't even like really experience like all of the characters. Like there's a girl on the show that I feel has just been cheated because she literally had like, she did nothing. Like, Are they so characters or are they contestants? No, well, I, yeah, I picked. No, but I picked up on that as well, Neve. Like that. No, that, not, 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 it's not, like not, no, but like as a Freudian slip. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's almost like when you said characters, it's like, is it scripted? Like. <laughs> well, yeah, because I guess I was like, um, when is this girl, whatever her name is, I can't even remember her name, because I'm like, when is this girl gonna come and have her like little story part time? Like she doesn't get to talk <laughs> because nothing happens to her in the whole show. She's just there in the background. I'm like, why? <laughs> There's too many people to like really. Yeah. Well, I guess just, um, the idea of uh, the human life is so complex. I mean, first there was the movie and then the book, but if we're talking about an episode in a, in a reality TV show with an agenda, it's like an agenda other than explaining yourself truthfully. I feel like there's no platform to um, show the world who you are. But also, like, I, I don't know, like, one of my favorite reality TV shows that I'm like not ashamed about at all is If You Were the One. So I'm gonna write that in. Like I don't know if you guys have seen that. If you were the one. Uh, it's a it's a mainland Chinese dating show where I think they have twenty something single women uh, with buzzers. And this it's it's uh, not only is it like one of the most nationally watched shows in mainland China, but it's also like hugely watched around the world. And these um kind of, you know, like really normal people, like really normal guys will go up onto the, um, the stage. And what the, what the producers do is um, they sort of make three different films about that individual contestant's life uh, and their values and what they're looking for in a relationship, et cetera, and, as well as their past life. And, um, and they have to win the affection of any of these women whilst also choosing a favorite woman and basically they just um they keep showing the films about who they are and they keep asking and answering questions with the with the bachelorettes until 
they either get chosen by somebody at the last round or they get rejected. Like, so those buttons, the buzzers that the women have, like Arthur reject the guys or choose them, but they, I don't know. And the pain, painful thing about the show is they don't pick compatible men to any of the women per se. They kind of pick like very, very, very normal, very normal people who um, almost always say the wrong thing or because it's such a huge show in China, um, a lot of guys will just get up there and then they'll, they'll do their little pitch, but then they'll be like, also, by the way, I run an electrician's company and this is my number. And it's like the best advertising. I guess what I'm saying is it's like, it's this, I, I don't watch it because I think there there's going to be a true couple coming from the show. Like I watch it. Cause like the guy comes up, he almost always says something really stupid and then the women buzz him out. And it's just this really weird experience. It's interesting anyway. you said there about um, that people will go on it just to get their number on television. I remember you were saying, Neve, that um, a lot of contestants in reality TV now have businesses. They're entrepreneurs and they're trying to yeah. promote their business. Yeah, definitely. For contestants on the show, they either have a company or they have a fitness program or one of them owns, like, sells swimwear on Instagram. And even, like, people uh, on other reality TV shows, um, they tend to have an agenda, which I don't know. I don't like that. I just, again, I'm like, oh, I just want everything to be in its box for a reality TV show. I'm like, it's already fake. Like, I, I already know it's not real. So let's just keep it there. I just guess that takes away for me. Like, it's even less. I don't want my TV to be a commercial. And I definitely don't want it to be a commercial when I don't know it's a commercial. Yeah, I wanted to ask actually if um, Sarah, Sean, Tower, Allison had a favourite reality TV show or um, or they had a thought on, um, yeah, the moral implications of like the constant need to create something more and more sensational. Yeah, my view is going to be quite polarising in a way, but I actually don't like yeah. the idea that producers are fabricating these shows by, you know, in, incorporating certain gimmicks to try and embellish the show in some way, shape or form. Mm. I just, you know, for reality TV, I just want it to be reality. I want it to be real. I want to see real people yeah. finding love. I want to see real people cook. And, you know, if you're a fan of drama, there are tons of, there are millions of drama shows on Netflix, Foxtel, Stan, and other streaming sites you can, that you can go to and watch. So, yeah. keep, you know, keep drama, drama, keep reality, reality. Don't mesh the two together. Like keep like an That's integrity. Fine. Yeah, yeah. Keep the integrity. Yeah. Can I ask? Do you watch MasterChef? Because you mentioned cooking, and that was something I actually yeah. hadn't thought of this entire time. But I, I found there's a lot of integrity in like that specific show. Like. Yes. Yes. I, that's actually my favorite show. Yeah. That's yeah. Why, why, why is it your favorite show? Mm. Because it's so real. You get to see real people. You don't get to. It's, they're not actors. They're contestants who are trying to do their best to win the show. One of the contestants grew up near me and was like my friend's classmate. And like, that was really cool as, I don't know, as an individual, it's, it's kind of like, oh, you know, anybody can empower themselves, rah, rah. <laughs> um, uh, you, were, you were saying, Sean, the contestants, like, did you have a favorite in this season or? Um, um, not particularly, you know, I haven't, <laughs> I, I only watch it uh, sometimes. I don't watch it every single night. I only watch what it is, sometimes. 
but it's great to see to, to see it. There is a development across the, the season as well, isn't there? You see them improve their skills too. Well, for this year, the contestants are there were there were previous contestants in other seasons, so they're all coming back oh, as well experienced. Cool. But still, yeah, as as the season progresses, you get us you get to really see their abilities, their skills shine, their cooking skills polishing, shining somewhere. And yeah, that's nice. That's a nice thing to see. And all everyone on the show is really supportive of each other. They're not trying to backstab each other in some in some way, you know. They're mm. not. Yeah, they're no villains. They're no inauthentic contestants. They're all real. They're all authentic. They that, like big brother personal time. But have you noticed that they spend their personal time talking about their um, struggles and how they either did it or did or didn't overcome the challenges that they were facing as as, as cooks? Yeah, that's that's one thing I really appreciate about the show and about the contestants more. Yeah, it makes them it just makes them more real. Cutting back to my point again. Mm. Mm. I don't I'm sorry. I just I don't know if I agree with the fact that we seek um, realness because I feel like as humans we watch things because people almost seem surreal and we almost strive to be surreal. I don't think we as humans are interested in normality. I think that we're more interested in seeing things that would never happen in real life and almost living in this weird ideal that that like we will achieve that sense of non-reality one day when we never will and i think that's i mean i don't know reality tv that well but i think like from all the big shows um like that's what i witness and i think i, I can take korea as an example where i wouldn't call it reality tv but k-dramas are a huge part of their like culture i guess and a lot of these k-dramas are like a submissive woman and like three guys chasing them and in the end she ends up having this perfect romance with one of the guys or something like that and then we now see in korean culture a whole bunch of like for the most part submissive women who just strive for perfect love um and i think that that's what in my mind that's what reality tv is it's like or TV in general is that it sets this expectation, this bar almost so much higher than reality, and then everyone strives for that bar, but then doesn't meet that bar, so then just gets severely like depressed. an indulgent fantasy. Yeah, I think that that's what a lot of, I think that's what we, not only reality TV, because I don't think reality TV is that much different from like a, a normal TV show, to be honest, but just in general, yeah, media is almost like an indulgence that we we take knowing that it's not true, but faking our brain into thinking that it's potentially true, I feel. I guess there are varying levels of inte integrity where like that kind of criticism does and doesn't apply. Like, It also really depends what genre you're talking about, I guess. Like MasterChef is reality television, but I don't, I don't know whether it is just very nuanced and, and I am just like a fooled consumer but it's always struck me as having a lot of integrity, like knowing it's, yeah, it's edited and like the music is super fucking dramatic. Like, as in like, um, whether it works on you or not, but it's, it's string music and it's going jun, 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 and it's very emotive and like, I there's a lot of narrative to it, but it, it always struck me as being real people rather than a uh, contrived sort of fantasy. Like, I mean, well, I guess, yeah. 
maybe reality TV is, is supposed to create a bridge between that sense of fantasy that you might get from drama, like where it's completely manufactured, like it's, it's, it's a uh, fantasy scenario, so it's not real. And then reality TV is um, essentially real people who are more relatable to the viewer, but they're put in this fantasy situation that would never actually happen in real life. Yeah, exactly. So it's like that bridge. So there's like a bit of an element of that they are real people and so you can kind of connect with them because uh, like Sean was saying, like you're watching them and you're like, oh, this person, like, you know, I hear a bit about their backstory, they've reflected on their life, like they're kind of real um, and they're allowed to have a, an element of their personality there, whether sort of it, it is definitely managed by producers, but then they're put in a situation that we'd never get to be in. But we can kind of imagine ourselves in it more easily than if we were, say, 007 or something. Because we're not yeah. ever randomly going to be put onto, like, a stage of to cook in front of a bunch of people and choose ingredients under that pressure. That's not real. But I think it's unapologetically unreal. But we we almost, in our brain, we're like, oh, this isn't real. This is never going to happen. But because they're so relatable, in a way, you're like, like, this could happen. I think that's what Elizabeth is getting at. And I completely agree with that. That's why we allow ourselves to indulge. And it could happen to me, is what you're kind of thinking way, way, way back in the back of your head. It's like, if or only also... I got better at cooking, then I could be <laughs> this person. Because everybody cooks. Yeah, I think there's a lot... Um, I mean, there's a lot with both of these questions. We could have been here uh, all day, all uh, week, all year, <laughs> unpacking, um, unpacking like, yeah, like there's so many different aspects to it. But I guess, with, uh, would you say, Neve, like, I guess with the reality TV or the moral implications, I guess there's a, do we need to be aware? Like, we can suspend our disbelief, but should we, be aware on some level or should we make, try and maintain that awareness? I think we should be informed consumers. I think that's what makes, like in my opinion, like to be un, like unabashed with my opinion, I think, um, the, I think the only way that we can morally justify these kinds of shows in any capacity is, um, is if the viewers are, con are, are informed of the circumstances to how it is made like uh not not in a way that's like political or anything like that or even critical per se but just you know like i so long as you know that it's not real real i i think it makes it okay because um maybe there needs to be a psa just so I, everybody but, but knows, I don't know who is responsible real, real. You know? and this has been a monster session like we've gone over time but it was so good i just like so just gonna keep going yeah. <laughs> but we could we could actually we probably do need to draw a line in the sand because we could go forever <laughs> it was lovely That's speaking fair. to everyone yeah thank you so much for joining us thank you for listening to the salon episode six special thanks to elizabeth for organizing and facilitating our discussion to the rmit capital club and rmit journalism society for contributing to the discussion thanks to neve for editing our podcast Ben for writing our theme song, and to all of our participants on Tuesday. Don't forget to join our Facebook group, The Salon RMIT Creative. You can join us from the Facebook group next Tuesday at 3pm, or we will be back in your ears next Friday.